Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Let me just play, and I, I hope my guest will just hold on for one second, because he'll like to hear this. Yves Giroux was on this program multiple of times recently, you know, the parliamentary budget officer. And we talked about the fact that there had been no fiscal update since uh, Parliament returned after Trudeau prorogued it. So here's what Yves Giroux partly had to say about that. So if you have no concerns whatsoever with people that you don't know handling billions of dollars and sending you the bill, then you can sleep soundly at night. But I'm a bit more skeptical than that. And personally, I I like it when people who administer money on other people's behalf, when they are accountable for that and when they have to regularly provide updates as to what is happening with that money. Yeah, think. Yeah, would absolutely think. So on uh, Monday, the finance minister is apparently going to deliver a fiscal update. Michelle Rempel-Garner joins us, Conservative Party of Canada, Nose Hill constituency in Calgary, the shadow health minister. Michelle, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to join us this this morning. Can I just get you to, before we talk about the other things that went on in the People's House this week, <laughs> you just heard the parliamentary budget officer, and, you know, it's quite a mouthful from Yves Giroux. Well, he's right. Um, yeah, he's right. We have had taxation without representation this year. That's just the reality, right? I mean, Parliament was shuttered for months while the government spent billions of dollars without the ability to have oversight of that spending. Uh, I mean, I can give you one small example, Roy. Um, it took me... The, the, the health minister hadn't appeared before our parliamentary committee. It was March she last appeared, and then it was months and months afterwards, and it took us three meetings to drag her kicking and screaming to answer questions for more than 45 minutes on a billion dollars worth of spending. Um, and we haven't had a full budget in almost two years now. So, you know, regardless of political stripe, if you believe in democracy, there should be accountability to how much money the government's been spending. And we haven't had a lot of ability to do that, but we've been fighting for it. So it'll be very interesting to see how much uh, extra money the government has spent on Monday uh, because they haven't been able to give uh, Canadians a clear plan on how we're getting out of uh, the COVID issue. Mm-hmm. Let's get at the issue that uh, what happened in, in Parliament this week between you and the Federal Minister of Health. How would you describe what went on? I, I don't think she understands what her job is. I, I, I guess that's the best way that I can put it. Um, She needs to understand that she does have a fiduciary responsibility to explain to the Canadian public and be accountable to Parliament in that regard on what her plans have been and what her actions have been. And, you know, her responses have been very flippant. I don't think she has a plan or a way out of this. I think that they've been caught flat-footed. I think they wasted a lot of time over the summer, you know, instead of, planning for a vaccine distribution or rapid testing. They were, as a cabinet and the government, very focused on the We Charity scandal. And I think that that lost us a lot of months. Um, that It's going to put Canadians' lives at risk, um, our economy at risk, uh, our mental health at risk. And I think they're going to be held to account for that. 
So you're the shadow health minister, you're a conservative critic, and so you also engage. Mr. Trudeau, who uh, thinks we're going to all be vaccinated by September um, in the United States and the U.K., they're talking roll out, rolling out the vaccine in a matter of weeks, assuming that the yeah. uh, their regulatory bodies agree. So what what do you make of what's going to happen in this country as far as vaccination and the vaccine availability is concerned? I wish I could tell you. Um, I had the health minister in the House of Commons till about midnight Eastern on Thursday, and I think I asked her, I think it was close to 30 times in a row, when will the first dose be administered? Uh, on what date? Uh, no answer, no answer, no answer, no answer. The, 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 they keep talking about how they bought or they have contracts for doses. Um, that doesn't matter because it matters when we get them. And those contracts were signed uh, sort of under very, like a very, cl- like a very opaque cloud. We don't know what's in those contracts. So we don't know when those doses are going to be delivered. Like, you know, let's say I was selling you a car, Roy. You know, I, you could buy that car for me, but there's one piece of information that you need. When are you going to get it? Um, and in theory, I could say, well, you're not going to get it for 10 years. Um, and that's really the situation that we're in right now as a country. And you don't have to take my word for it. Like, I mean, even the provincial governments, they had this disastrous call with the government this week. And um, they couldn't get that answer. And that's pretty serious, given the provincial governments have a big responsibility for rollout of um, vaccines, therapeutics, testing. So we have a big job ahead of us as opposition over the next few weeks to keep pressing for answers. But I'm I'm proud of the work that we've done. Uh, You know, I think that we have lit a fire under the government and um, uh, hopefully we can get some more answers uh, before before Christmas. Well, is it your thought, your assessment then, that uh, neither Mr. Trudeau nor the Minister of Health have any idea when the vaccine is going to be administered to Canadians? Yeah, I don't think they do. I, I really don't think they do. I think uh, the, the closest thing I've gotten to an answer was that about 3 million, uh, enough for 3 million Canadians to be vaccinated could be delivered maybe around the beginning of April, possibly, depending on regulatory approval. But there's no plan on rollout. Um so, so when you think about the population of Canada, what are we at, about 37 million, mm. give or take, yeah. these days? I mean, what I've heard from public health officials is that if we have half the population uh, vaccinated by this time for people who want it next year, uh, it's going to be a miracle. So um, that's not great news. You stay in touch with uh, our friends on the other side of the border in the United States. Yes. Do you have a sense of uh, how quickly the general population of the United States is going to be inoculated, those who want it? I do. So the United States um, developed something called Operation Warp Speed. And this has been going for, I think, six months now. It was a very senior-level task force with a lot of money put behind it to both develop um, the vaccines themselves as well as plans to uh, deploy them, and of course, this was actually done, done under the Trump administration. And um, the, the current projections uh, show that approximately 20 million Americans will be vaccinated before the end of December, and then 30 million per month after that. Uh, so that puts 
the Americans at having vaccinated the equivalent of the entire Canadian population by the middle of January. So, I mean, the Americans have plans here. They're not looking at shutting down their economy with, like, you know, impingements on civil liberty and or infringements on civil liberty and, and, and you know, effects on mental health for months and months and months to come, as the Trudeau government clearly has planned for. Uh, they've got a plan to move beyond this and probably have better public health outcomes. Um, and it's not just the United States. It's countries like Argentina, Mexico, Israel, 26 European Union nations, Japan, Australia. Um, they're all ahead of us on this. And uh, I, I really hope that every Canadian holds Trudeau to account for that because the procurement and review of these vaccines squarely falls within provincial jurisdiction. Yeah. And there's also still much to be said, Michelle, and accounted for over the shutting down, effectively shutting down the GPHIN, Canada's Global Public Health Intelligence Agency, which was tasked with discovering international health threats and did a great job at that. But under Mr. Trudeau and the Minister of Health, analysts were reassigned to study the impact of vaping on Canadians. I mean, this has been bungled since day one. Um, you're right. They they shut the Trudeau Liberal government shut down our early warning system for uh, potential pandemics. I think it was in 2018. So they were relying on data from the World Health Organization, who was in turn relying data from the Chinese government mm-hmm. on the spread of COVID. Um, you know, I remember being in the House of Commons when they implied that, suggesting that we should shut down borders in I think it was February that that was racist. Um, I remember them flip-flopping on the issues of masks back, forth, here, there. I still don't even know what their, you know, final recommendations are because it's changed so many times. Um, they, very unclear direction. And I think what that all means is a lot of Canadians just don't trust the government anymore, right? Because they're being asked, anybody listening to this is being asked to sacrifice a lot. Visits with families. I just had a friend today whose father passed away in long-term care. She hardly got to see him this year. It breaks my heart. Um, lost jobs, lost businesses. Like Canadians are being asked to sacrifice a lot. And when we have conflicting advice, conflicting information, um, the government is in a position where they lose that trust. And I'm putting that mildly. Um, you know, we're starting to see civil unrest. You know, this, this restaurant issue in Toronto. Um, you know, Trudeau has to own up to his job and ha- take a leadership position. What we're asking the government for is clear data at a federal level on how this thing is spreading, who is at, who is the most vulnerable, uh, and what measures we should be considering in that context. We don't have that data. They're not making data-driven decisions, in my opinion, or they're not being transparent with that data. The second thing we're asking for is a clear rollout plan for vaccines, timelines, education so that Canadian public can make informed decisions, uh, and understand when that option is going to be available to them. Yep. And the third thing that we're asking for is rapid tests. That's, yeah. that's what leadership looks like. Well, it should all have been in place a long time ago. Look, I had just, can I get a soundbite answer for you, from you on this one? <laughs> so the PMO releases the content of a call between Justin Trudeau and your party leader, Aaron O'Toole, before the call ever takes place. And there's some serious backpedaling taking place at the PMO, but we should just admit that these people are gifted with superpowers, don't shouldn't we? I mean, That's the truth is, just my humor. It's just a joke. I know they're incompetent. I, I was sitting with Aaron O'Toole when the readout came out, and I was like, "Well, I'm not Justin Trudeau." <laughs> so, 
Uh, just It's just incompetent. I'm sure you're aware that earlier in the week in Vancouver, there was a gathering of people who are calling for, and they included two members of parliament, one NDP, one Green, calling for the release of Meng Wanzhou. And from what I can gather, and I stand to be corrected if I'm wrong on this, but what I can gather, that wasn't really any consideration for the two Michaels, the two Canadians being held in China. And I'm sure they're not in a country club reality. They're not living the life that uh, Ms. Meng is living in Vancouver moving from multi-million dollar mansion to multi-million dollar mansion. There are other Canadians who are imprisoned in China. I think one or two are facing the death sentence. Um, there are also the, uh, various groups are calling for Canada to engage the People's Republic of China as a key participant in Canada's 5G network. This is while China threatens 300,000 Canadians living in Hong Kong. And their aberrant behavior during the pandemic, like canceling the vaccine contract between Canada and the People's Republic, which was signed by Mr. Trudeau in May. I would have had a problem with that because the company that, um, that the deal was signed with, as I understand it, has some relationship with the People's Liberation Army. So, Guy Saint-Jacques knows all about this. Canada's ambassador to China between 2012 and 2016, and the ambassador joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Ambassador Saint-Jacques, it's always uh, a pleasure to speak with you, sir. Thank you so much. And what do you make of the of the call to release Ms. Meng, but without any call for China to reciprocate and release the two Michaels? Yes. Well, first, uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Green, for your uh, invitation. I must say that I was a bit uh, puzzled when I hear when I heard about uh, that uh, conference, and uh, uh, then I started to look at uh, who was organizing this, and it seems that it's a bunch of uh, leftist leftist uh, organizations that like to criticize the Americans, and in fact. Uh, when I look at, at what was said during this uh, conference, it was pretty outrageous saying that, in fact, uh, we should worry about the United States because they are the one that uh, uh, spy on us and that, in fact, they rejected Huawei because Huawei refused to open back doors so that uh, the Americans could spy. And so uh, I was uh, uh, very disappointed to see that two Canadian MPs would join uh, such an event, uh, because the, in fact, it plays in the end of, of China, and uh, when you know the, everything that China has been doing, how it that it has been contravening international rules, how it's engaging in bullying tactics, uh, uh, how they are abusing human rights, uh, religious freedom, freedom of expression, uh, it's very difficult to understand why uh, people would accept to uh, participate in uh, such an event. So uh, for me, it was, uh, this was uh, pretty outrageous. And uh, at least the, uh, the Green Party uh, member of parliament uh, in his remarks talk about uh, the two Michaels. But, uh, you know, this is, uh, uh, I think it would have been better for him not to participate in this event. Yeah. If you're a member of parliament and you participate in an event like that, and it's to the to the satisfaction of the People's Republic of China, 
they are going to see you as uh, as useful to them temporarily, at least I would imagine. But it's not going to do anything for uh, for the two Michaels, is it? And 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 Ambassador, how would you suspect they are being uh, treated? What is their daily life like? Do you think? Well, it's um, uh, it must be uh, uh, very tough uh, because. Uh, uh, in one case, in the case of Michael's paper, we, we know that he is in a cell with uh, about 19 other people. The, the lights are always kept on. Uh, the, they are lucky to have enough food uh, to eat every day. Uh, in the case of uh, uh, Michael Kovrick, uh, uh, at the beginning of his uh, ordeal, they allowed him to receive uh, reading material that his family was sending in and that the uh, embassy staff uh, would bring during the, the monthly visit, but all that uh, stopped in January of this year, and in fact it took nine months before another visit was organized, and uh, as you may have known, when Ambassador Barton finally met in uh, October with uh, Michael Kovic for only uh, 30 minutes, uh, he was the one to inform Michael of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic uh, uh, Michael had no clue at all, and uh, uh, I understand that he is in good uh, spirit. But the the other problem is that, of course, uh, the, the our two Canadians uh, don't see uh, the end of their ordeal. In fact, the Chinese uh, government is not adhering to its own rules uh, with regard to how uh, judicial uh, cases are supposed to evolve. Uh, I recall when I dealt uh, uh, with the case of uh, Kevin Garrett, uh, you know, this is uh, very specific. The Chinese law says that you have six months for the detention uh, period where uh, a detainee will be uh, questioned. And uh, this is a very tough ordeal because if you read the book of uh, Kevin Garrett, you will see that... uh, in fact, it was more than six years, uh, six uh, hours per day, uh, a very tough uh, condition. But after that, once you are true, the government has to decide whether you will be formally charged or not. And once you are formally charged, then there are timelines for when the trial uh, should start. And so uh, in the case of Michael Kovic and Michael's paper, uh, the trial has not started. In a way, I think it, it, this could be good news because... The, uh, once the, the, the tri- their trial will start, uh, it will become uh, almost impossible to get them out because China will say, don't, uh, don't ask us to intervene into a legal process. Don't you know that we are a country governed by law? I think they are probably waiting to see if uh, Joe Biden will have a different approach uh, when it comes to Huawei. And also, for sure, they are following the... Uh, hearings uh, that took place that are taking place right now in Vancouver uh, to, to look at the allegation of Mrs. Mung that her rights were not uh, respected when she was uh, when she arrived in Canada on December 1st uh, 2018 and uh, uh, if the judge were to conclude that indeed her rights uh, were not respected and uh, freeze her well then she would uh, presumably go back to China and maybe we could hope that uh, uh, we could extract our two Canadians, but uh, all this to say that they are, uh, I hope that uh, uh, they are resilient and that they are bracing themselves for possibly uh, quite some time in uh, Chinese jails. 
Well, um, and there's no guarantee, and I have to take a break here, Ambassador, and we'll come back, but there's also no guarantee, no assurance that if uh, suddenly the government were to say, well, we're just going to allow Ms. Meng to go back to uh, to China, to the People's Republic, and they put in place whatever they needed to put in place. There's no guarantee that China would then turn around and say, well, we'll let you two Michaels go. No, you're right. In fact, I suspect they will want to extract uh, something. That's what they, they tried to do uh, uh, in the case of Kevin uh, Garrett. Uh, you know, we had to negotiate uh, with them uh, for them to let him go. And, of course, at the time, they were interested in getting an extradition treaty with Canada. And we said we won't sign a treaty with you, but we will agree to discuss. And so uh, uh, we agreed to create a new Mm-hmm. national dialogue on uh, national security and rule of law. And the purpose of that uh, dialogue was to look at high-level uh, consular cases. Uh, of course, uh, you know, now that we have uh, consular, uh, high-profile consular cases on both sides, it, uh, you know, this dialogue should be uh, convened, but the Chinese yeah. are refusing to, to use it, which just showed that... Uh, uh, the, you know, they, they don't play by the rules. You negotiated with with China. If we go back to the um, the earlier case that you were talking about, uh, we don't have an extradition agreement with uh, with China. But what's it like to negotiate with them? <clears throat> well, it's um, uh, it's difficult. Uh, they are very tough uh, negotiators, and I recall in the in the uh, specific case of uh, Mr. Garrett. Uh, despite the agreement that had been reached between Prime Minister Trudeau and Premier Li Keqiang uh, during the visit of Mr. Trudeau to uh, Beijing at the end of August uh, 2016, uh, they, they said, well, we think that uh, you misunderstood what uh, the, our Premier said, and he never promised to, to free uh, your uh, uh, Canadian and I like to take uh, copious notes at uh, meetings and so I turn I open my notebook and I said let me quote what your premier said and uh, they got very angry and they said well we we know what our premier and but from then on uh, you know we we could uh, make uh, some progress uh, the difficulty with the, the Chinese is uh, that uh, the you know you, you will get to uh, an agreement, and uh, their position is uh, what is ours is ours, what is uh, yours is uh, negotiable. And so, and you may have heard of their uh, attitude, uh, you know, to, to engage in win-win cooperation. Well, you know, I came to the conclusion that it's uh, two wins for China. So you have to keep that in mind, and when you negotiate with them, you have to, to be tough yourself. You have to stick to to uh, your bottom line, and you have to push back when they, they want to, to be tough on you. And you have to try to design the agreements that uh, in such a way that they will uh, respect them, because uh, uh, if you happen to uh, say something that they don't like, uh, they will uh, punish you for sure, as uh, Australia is now uh, seeing, uh, despite the fact that they have a free trade agreement with China, they have been penalized very severely because they have dared ask for an inquiry on the origins of the of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. 
Yeah. Well, that's another issue, isn't it? Uh, China's behavior during this uh, this pandemic. And I don't know how you trust the country, given what they've done just in the relationship with Canada. And they continue to threaten Canada. Ambassador, how does the uh, how does uh, Huawei and 5G, Canada's 5G network, how does that factor into the relationship uh, we have with the PRC? Do they really, uh, is this significantly important to them or is it just a chess piece? Well, it's uh, it's very important because uh, Huawei is one of their uh, flagship uh, companies, and uh, it's uh, uh, an example that they want other Chinese companies uh, to follow to as part of the Made in China 2025, where they want to uh, avoid depending on foreign companies for uh, high technology, and not only that, but they want to become a net uh, exporter and. Huawei, of course, has become a very successful company. Let's recall that they yeah. happen to, in my view, to steal a lot of technology. Of well, they're, they're, the Chinese, they're, they're the Chinese version of Nortel, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, yes. Well, the, <laughs> uh, Nortel, for, uh, uh, a number of years, did well in, yeah. uh, in China. <clears throat> but Ambassador uh, Saint-Jacques, I apologize to you, sir. I, when I talk to you, I don't look at the clock, and I just realize we have 15 seconds left. Because it's fascinating to hear your perspective and your understanding of this country that we have to deal with. There's a global news story on uh, on Thursday, and the headline, the lead of it is, I do it again in a second. And it's uh, a quote from the woman behind the RCMP um, class action lawsuit, the class action lawsuit against the RCMP. And uh, the one that's a $100 million class action lawsuit, thousands of women, thousands of women, have been uh, harassed, sexually harassed. Uh, some of the descriptions by the investigating uh, judge, who's a former Supreme Court justice, are just really, really, really disturbing, uh, just off the scale. And uh, this has been a very difficult time for the women who, in fact, led the uh, the uh, public charge on on this issue of what was going on at the RCMP. Janet Merlo joins us on the program. And uh, Janet, thank you for, for, for taking the time. How are you? I'm good, Roy. How are you today? I'm okay. I'm fine. Um, I know it's been a very hard time for for you and for other women who, who led the, uh, the public initiative to really take this seriously, what was going on inside the RCMP. So, um, quoting, I don't know where to go with this. Let me, let me try this. There were stories or allegations by the uh, report that was issued by the Supreme Court Canada Justice, Michel Vastarage. He authored the report and released it just days ago. And it details allegations of bullying, intimidation, and assaults, ranging from unwanted kissing and groping to serious sexual assault. I'm leaving some words out. Have things changed? Is it your sense that things have changed? And is enough being done within the RCMP to change that reality? Uh, I still hear from women regularly, actually, who are still in the force and, and dealing with harassment issues. And that I think that speaks very loudly because if the force had initiated some changes or, or some pathway to change, these women would have some confidence within the organization themselves to to go forward with a complaint or, or have faith in an investigation. But but they're reaching out to me and some of the other ladies that have 
you know, help them along the way. And, and I think that speaks volumes that nothing has changed. The report, as I understand it, and please correct me if I'm wrong about this, but there was the recommendation was that an outside investigator really look at this hard about this this culture within the RCMP. And uh, Bill Blair, the public safety minister, uh, Brenda Lucky, the commissioner of the RCMP, and Mr. Trudeau were all asked whether they would commit to an outside independent investigator reviewing what's going on inside the RCMP. What was their reaction? Um, the reaction was um, crickets. <laughs> it was it was um, just watching them not commit to that. The one and only thing that is going to change the RCMP, all the other initiatives and changes, the other 51 recommendations are fine and they're good, but they will never work if it's not imposed and done by an outside entity. And that's what all the reports over the years have suggested the very first thing they need to do is bring in somebody from outside to do it, to, to clean it up and reorganize. And neither one of them commented on it, neither one of them committed to it. So, same old, same old? I, I would say that within the next two or three years, there will be another class action filed by all the people that are still go, dealing with the the sexual harassment. Janet, a price has been paid by you and other women from within the RCMP. You and I have been talking for at least 10 years now and uh, on and off the air. And, and I know that you have faced, and the word that was quoted in the Global News story was horrific, end quote, backlash from the public and the RCMP. And you've said, I don't want to take you out on a limb here, but you've said that you have PTSD and often fear leaving your home. Um, I do. Yeah. Yeah. My, my entire world changed. I, um, I'm certainly not the person I used to be. I do really leave my home. I have, which in COVID times works well, but I have a very small group of friends that I, that I talk to and, and visit with and stuff. But my, my life is very limited now. What do you suspect the true intent of the federal government and the RCMP uh, is as far as following up on the report issued by the former Supreme Court of Canada Justice Michel Bassarache? What do you suspect the true intent of the federal government and the RCMP leadership is as far as following up on the recommendations is concerned? I don't think the intent is there to do the work that needs to be done. And that is very discouraging after, after all we've been through and all the years of court. I, I, like I was saying, I, I hear from women all over who are, and some men actually have reached out within the last few days and who are having a rough time. And, and I still hear of all the things going on in the force, but what I have not heard in all these years since this started, was one per not even since the apology, since Bob Paulson's apology, I have not heard of one person who has been investigated, um, suspended, charged, or fired for harassment in the workplace. Yet I've helped so many women since the apology 
even reaching out to Brenda Lucky and saying, can you please help this poor girl? She's like starting her career and she's already seeing a psychiatrist. Can you please intervene and help her before we lose another one? And she did. She she did intervene in a couple of them, but it's still it's still just as prevalent and they are still turning a blind eye to it because I haven't heard of one person who has been dealt with. Have the monies been paid out to the identified victims? Because the last time we talked, I think last time we talked about this was maybe two years ago. No money or very little in the way of money had been paid out. Yeah, the entire lawsuit's done now. And so, okay. okay. Everyone has gotten their compensation. But, you know, this was never about the money. The compensation we got was a was a pittance in in what I could have earned over a 15-year period that I, I lost my career. And yeah. I could have worked for another 15 years and, and built up a pension and been more secure putting my girls through post-secondary. All that was lost. So the money, it was never about the money. It was about the change and... Yeah, so much has changed. I remember that from our our first conversations. Uh, and you loved being a police officer. I did. I enjoyed working with the public. In fact, in fact, if I was to break down the stress, I would say that ten percent of it was from the public that I dealt with, and ninety percent of it was in house. And so I I absolutely loved being out and, and going to calls and listening to people's stories and helping them. And, and I, re- I really enjoyed that. But the, the internal dynamics back at, back at the base was enough to cost me my health, my mental health, some of my physical health, my career, my marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I and a lot of tell- friends. We've lost some good friends along the way. Yeah. I know we talked about that the other day. Um, now I, I want to mention your book, but technology has decided I may not, and I had it on my screen here, but it's gone. Remind us, please. I uh, wrote a book about my journey in nineteen or sorry, twenty thirteen. I started in nineteen ninety one and was in the force until twenty ten. And twenty thirteen, I wrote a book. And when I when I completed my exit interview, when I left the RCMP. I wrote a multi-page exit interview that was anything but co- politically correct. And I, I swore that one day I would write a book and expose what my experience had been. And, and I was, uh, fortunately, I was able to do that. And I think by doing that, it, it gave some other people a voice or helped them find their voice. Mm-hmm. Give us the title. It's called No One to Tell. You know, my, my memory. Silence on life in the RCMP. Yeah, no one to tell. Janet, thanks for joining us. Thanks for what you, what you did and are doing for women, and men, um, in in dangerous positions and you know first responders. Diane Francis column in the Financial Post: Bill Morneau's taxpayer-funded bid for a new gig in Paris. The familiar story of an elite that takes care of its own. Diane Francis joins us on the Chorus Radio Network. Diane, so we had, as you're right, Mr. Trudeau pushed Mr. Morneau off the, uh, you know, made him walk the 
proverbial political plank. And now here they are. They're pitching really hard and spending taxpayer money to get them the top job at the OECD. Yep, they look after their own. So, um, so what is this? Rep- it, I'm sorry. It go was on. a pretty outrageous story when I read it in the CBC, because what I what I sort of led off the column by saying was, what CEO of a corporation pushes his chief financial officer out of his job and then spends shareholder money to get him a good gig with a big expense account? I mean, you know, this, it's just shocking. And you're right that 19 federal public servants have been working part-time and advising former finance minister Bill Morneau on how to become the Secretary General of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD. And that's a good, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty cushy uh, gig, isn't it? It starts by living in Paris uh, in, in good luxury. They live in, they live in Paris, and it's a, it's a um, he's not running something. What he is is he's sort of the figurehead for a large think tank uh, and uh, NGO like not non-governmental organization called the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. This is called the Rich Peoples, the Rich Rich Countries Club. Mm-hmm. 30, 37 countries finance it, pay for it. And what they do is they measure things. They measure things. They come out with policy initiatives. One of their big pets is money laundering, the problem of money laundering, which is laughable considering how poorly Canada has done under Morneau and Trudeau in the last five years by not doing anything about money laundering. Um, and they, they collect stats. So if you want to find out what the per capita taxation is by country or how much health care is spent per person, country by country, they do these comparative statistics and statistic gathering. They have a lot of conferences, and they certainly have a lot of cocktail parties. <laughs> So a very nice soft landing if he gets the job. And if I remember correctly, the OECD's anti-bribery arm was going to be looking very hard at the federal government's actions concerning the SNC-Lavalin scandal. Whatever happened to that? Well, they have. But, you know, they've been, they've been very lackadaisical in terms of, of going after Canada specifically. Who hasn't been? There's a, there's a number of other international organizations. Uh, Transparency International, the Tax Justice Network, uh, the United Nations has a financial uh, financial arm that looks at money laundering and does country reports. And Canada fares the poorest of all developed nations. We are a secrecy haven and a dirty money capital. And all you have to do is look at the skyline of Vancouver and Toronto to see the results. These condos that are, have been thrown up for years are probably uh, dirty money harboring dirty money. And that's, that's the nature of it. And Canada's been absolutely lackadaisical, but a lot of people have made a lot of money doing this. Are you surprised, given the departure of Bill Morneau, which was really just a couple of months ago, under the circumstances under which he was ordered out, are you surprised that, they've, that they're doing this so quickly, so, so uh, blatantly, so quickly? Well, no, I think, in fact, in his resignation press conference, uh, he talked about wanting the the job of Secretary General at the OECD. So obviously that was a deal they made. You know, I'll take this one for you, Mr. Prime Minister, but you're going to get me that job that I want. And, you know, he also lives already part-time in France. They have a villa. They're very, he's fabulously wealthy, Monod. So, you know, what what the government has done is, is they're 
They're pulling out the stops. He's getting public relations advice, diplomatic advice, strategic advice, goodness knows what, to help him land this job. Now, there's 12 guys running for this job. I think there may be a woman. I'm not sure. But, you know, there's a lot of other candidates, and so it's a long shot, and he came in late in the day uh, because I think he, they just seized on that as a very graceful exit strategy for a guy that otherwise left under a cloud in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. Uh, we have about 30 seconds, Diane. What's in it for Canada if he gets the job? There is nothing in it for Canada, uh, any more than there was anything in it for Canada when our prime minister spent we don't know how many millions of dollars chasing a useless Security Council seat on the United Nations that only had a term of two years. Useless. It's prestige. It's the elites wanting to rub elbows with their global counterparts. It's cocktail parties. It's travel. It's networking. And I don't think it does a darn thing for Canada. Zero. And I'd like to see somebody explain and quantify what benefit it is for a Canadian to be Secretary General of the OECD. I just don't see it. Nonsense. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.